And God, speak to us. We open scripture now, and this is not just detached. These are not ethereal, or these are not fairy tales that are detached from reality. These are things that you preserved for us to read so that we could know what's true about you, what's true about your care and commitment to this world. And God, things that are true about our lives as we walk through hard seasons. And so God, breathe life and encouragement into our hearts as we've walked through what's been a really overwhelming week. We sit here, Jesus, with you this morning, wanting to find you and ourselves together in this story. So breathe life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 6 is where we left off. And if you remember the last time that we were together, uh, we discussed Jesus feeding the 5,000, this pretty incredible miracle, the only one of all of Jesus' miracles that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. And in Matthew's gospel, he notes that in addition to 5,000 men, that there also were some women and children that were present, but it's clear in all four of the gospels that the overwhelming majority were men who had gathered. And then John makes clear what everyone else seems to be hinting at. And what he makes clear is that everyone who gathered, those men that gathered, were looking for someone to lead a revolution, for someone to, to be the leader that they would get behind who would fight against their oppressors. In fact, John's gospel tells you, and this is what we roll into this morning, he tells you that the next day that crowd returns trying to make Jesus their king. And because of that, Jesus will now withdraw and depart. And because Jesus refused to become their king and the revolutionary that they wanted to match their paradigm of the worst oppression that we face, Jesus, is the Roman government over us. Just overthrow that and it changes everything. Jesus wouldn't match that paradigm, so he withdrew. And when he does, the crowds leave him. And this will be the last time that we'll see a crowd in Galilee gathering around Jesus, waiting and wanting to see what he'd do because now they're starting to see what he's actually going to do and it doesn't fit for them and so they're no longer interested they turn their backs it's interesting because it's not just the crowd that's stuck in this moment where they are turning on jesus the disciples themselves seem to share in the crowd's disappointment because as we'll read in just a moment beginning in verse 45 it's going to tell you that jesus is going to force the guys onto a boat he made them get onto the boat. So linguists look at the, the way that sentence is structured and, and they point out to us that this is something that they were forced to do against their will. That they too were ready to stay there. Look at your following, Jesus. Look at this moment. Let's capitalize on it. And when everybody comes back to make him king and Jesus sends them away, even the guys seem devastated and Jesus places them on a boat, giving them no other option except to get onto a boat and away they went floating off into the distance. But Jesus won't go with them. Instead, we're about to find Jesus on a hillside. And if you've ever been to the Sea of Galilee, it's, it's, it's not that big. It's eight miles at its longest point. It's four miles across. And Jesus is going to go up on a hillside. It's the lowest setting freshwater lake in all of the world with mountains really all around it. Uh, but you get up on a hillside from the banks of the Sea of Galilee, you can see most all of it. And Jesus is going to withdraw up onto the banks of the Sea of Galilee. And he's going to watch from there and see the guys out in the middle of the lake struggling and straining. Straining is the word that's used, but it, it means to be tormented by the wind or to be tortured. It's the same word that the guy who identifies himself, the demon who identifies himself as legion a few stories ago, says, Jesus, don't torment me. Don't torture me. 
It's the same word used here for the guys. They're rowing against a gnarly headwind. They're doing their best. They're straining. They're wiped out in the middle of the night. And Jesus is watching the whole thing play out. It's a familiar story for many of us. Why don't you read it with me? Beginning in Mark 6, verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed, Jesus did, to the mountain to pray. Now an evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, out in the middle of the lake, and Jesus was alone on the land. And he could see them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and he would have passed them by. If the story's familiar to, to you like it is to me, it's almost unfortunate that it loses just the, the awestruck moment that we ought to feel as lost if we've grown up hearing this story. Because it's a pretty wild thing that they're out in the middle, a couple of miles from shore, in the middle of a body of water, and Jesus all of a sudden emerges, seen walking on the water. And it says, he would have passed them by. It's a wild image right here that, that really should shock and surprise us. And I'm jealous if you've not heard this story uh, because you get to enjoy the wonder that for many of us, because we've grown up hearing this story, we kind of miss out on. But it is an amazing and awestruck thing. And it says this, verse 49, And when they saw Jesus walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost, and they cried out. Now, you need to know the word cried out here. It's, it, there's a, a Greek word, krazo, that means to, it's with a K, but it, it's... it's we get our English word crazy from Greek to Latin to English. But crazo uh, is, is the sound of a wild animal shrieking and screaming. And this is a form of that worm that's like, or of that word, that, that's a very active, very intense form of the word that's telling you that the moment that they see Jesus walking, remember they believe that the sea is the hotbed of evil and chaos. They think it's almost like some grim reaper-like figure some weird enchanted ghost or, or something that's out to get them that will drag them down as they see it, they lose their minds, they're screaming, they're freaking out. There's actual terror uh, that, that's happening inside the boat. For they all saw Jesus and were deeply troubled, but immediately he talked to them. He addressed the fear, he sees them freaking out, so he immediately speaks up and says to them, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat with them, and once on the boat, the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled, for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. In verse 51, it makes the comment, well, it makes the comment, that they were amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. They're shocked. Now, now look, uh, we'll just read the next couple of verses, how it wraps up, because it tells you that they're blown off course. When they, they crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. This was not where they were headed for, but the wind ends up blowing them to a new destination. And they anchor there. And when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized Jesus and they ran through the whole surrounding region and began to carry on beds those who were sick uh, to wherever they heard that Jesus was, wherever he entered into villages, cities, in the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged Jesus that they might just touch the hem of his garment. 
It tells you that word has spread of the woman who reached up and touched the hem of his garment and was healed. Word was spreading and people were waiting for their chance. And as many as touched Jesus were made well. There seems to be a pattern that develops in the Gospels that we're already starting to see very clearly. And it's that Jesus does something otherworldly and that it leaves the disciples in, in the state that it mentions here that they were amazed within themselves, just astounded and shocked. Their mouths are hanging open. But the real pattern is not just Jesus does something wild. They feel really impressed. It's that in the end, it makes the comment that they still don't fully get it. They still haven't fully understood who Jesus is. In fact, Mark masterfully divides, divides his gospel into two sections. And the first section is Jesus progressively revealing his identity, patiently, progressively revealing it. And then there's a shift at the middle of chapter 8 where it shifts to him very intentionally and clearly uh, making it known what his purpose was in coming here. His purpose his identity that he's slowly revealing is that he's God in the flesh and Messiah who was promised. And then what he'll reveal about his purpose is as soon as Peter, this is the, the, the hinge in the story that, that changes from one theme to the next. As soon as Peter looks at Jesus and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus then says, the son of man's come that he must suffer. That's where it shifts from, okay, now you finally get who I am. And, and that was a patient process where I'm slowly revealing that to you. But then he instantly tells them with clarity, and I've come to die. And again and again, he's going to say it. I've come, I've, I've come to give myself. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Up until this point, though, they don't get it. It's not in chapter 8 yet where, where Peter speaks up and says, we know you're the Christ, the son of the living God. They're not there yet. They're just amazed, but still not fully getting it. And I would argue there's a difference, in fact, a world of difference between amazement and faith. Think of the difference. Amazement expresses what your mind can't really fathom. It expresses that your mind can't fathom what your eyes are seeing. Faith, though, is the next step that engages your heart and your feet and your hands in response to what you, excuse me, in response to what you're seeing. Amazement just steps back because it can't process everything. Faith is what steps back into gear and responds because of what you're seeing. I'll give you an example and an illustration of this. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the two different companies, Blue Origin and then also Virgin Galactic. I don't know how many of you are fans, but there's a story in the news this last week that caught my eye and, and brought them back into uh, the limelight for me. Blue Origin is the company that's owned by Jeff Bezos that's trying to take civilians into space where uh, you can get a ticket to blast off in a rocket and go to space with him. Uh, there was a, one person who's already done it with him. Pretty wild experience, I'm sure. For an undisclosed ticket price, though, you could do the same one day. And then Virgin Galactic is basically their competitor. It's owned by Richard Branson. Uh, there was an article that was in the New York Times earlier this month, it was just a week and a half ago, where it talked about the fact that you could, for the price of $450,000 is all, you could be shot, you're on a crazy jet, you fly up 50 miles above the surface of the Earth, and then you free fall for about four minutes. So if you do the math, it's 100, 100 grand plus per minute of that free fall. But if you really want that experience, you can have it. It's funny because the article said this. It says, that's $200,000 more than the company was charging back in 2014 before it had to suspend sales after the crash of its first space plane. So 
So the crash <laughs> created a supply and demand issue that almost allowed them to double ticket prices while they figured out or tried to figure out why. For me, I read these stories and I am absolutely amazed that our reality looks more like George Jetson's life than I ever imagined that it would. I'm amazed that expresses the fact that my mind can't fathom what I'm seeing. But I'm also amazed that people are saying, yeah, about a half million bucks, why not if I can get four minutes of a free fall in that thing that in the test run blew up in space? Like, yeah, sure, sign me up, I'm ready to go. For, for me, I might have amazement, I do not have faith. I have zero interest in getting a seat on one of those flights. Because faith is, the di is so different from amazement. Faith is what would engage my heart and my feet and my hands to push me into a response to what I'm seeing. I might be amazed by this, but I'm not interested in taking a flight with it. And I'd present to you that, that many who encountered Jesus, though they were amazed by him, they really lacked faith in him. And I think the same thing can be said of so many modern people today who name the name of Christ and can even be amazed at Jesus, but not truly have any real faith in Jesus. And what we see this morning in this story is at this point in Mark's biography of the life of Jesus, that that could be said of the disciples too. Sure, they were amazed with him. They're astounded but they haven't yet got it. They haven't yet engaged their heart in faith. In fact, they make the comment that the issue, Mark adds the statement, that it was because of the hardness of their hearts. It wasn't that Jesus' performance wasn't good enough to... It wasn't like his performance was keeping them from progressing from just amazement to faith. That wasn't the issue. It was their hard hearts and their expectations. Think of those two things, because they're really interconnected. It was their hard hearts and their own exp expectations. The hardness of their hearts, verse 52, is, is the term that's used of them. Their hearts were hard. There's biblical imagery that opens this up for us elsewhere in scripture where it compares either a heart of stone or a heart that's made of clay. So the imagery is that there's one that's pliable, one that's willing to yield, one that's moldable, that one's pliable while the other one is rigid and unwilling to yield to anything. That is the image in the scriptures of a hard heart. Our minds, when seeing this, go back to Pharaoh, don't they? Where Moses stands before Pharaoh and God is accomplishing all of these miracles in front of him. But it says that Pharaoh has hardened his heart. And because of that, he's unwilling to yield to the God who can do the miraculous. It's the same description that Jesus will give of the religious leaders. He will look at them and say, because of the hardness of your hearts, you're missing it. But now it's being applied to Jesus' own followers. Mark adds this little note. The other gospels often do this, where they add their own comment or commentary to the story. Mark barely ever does it. This is one of those rare moments. And what he tells you is not that the guys were stupid, but that they were stubborn. That by and large, those who encountered Jesus failed to see who Jesus, for who he was. They failed to see him for who he really was because of their expectations of who he should be and what he should do. They had expectations about who he should be and what he should do, and he didn't meet those expectations. And so faith was not something that they had present in their lives. Now, we have to be fair. We can't be too hard on these guys because faith isn't natural. It's not, right? It's not natural for us. It wasn't natural for them. That, that's why it's rare. That's why it's hard to come by. Fear is natural. Anxiety is. Your doubt is. My envy is. Our self-centeredness is natural. Uh, waiting and, and wanting a predictable day 
is natural. Lying awake at night, thinking through worst case scenarios is natural. Comfort being our highest value is natural for us. Faith is not natural. Pastor and author Paul Tripp, he said it this way. He says, the disciples were not naturally men of faith. And so we see Christ doing this thing again and again. He will introduce his disciples to some kind of difficulty. And in the difficulty, he will reveal his glory. It's to alter their paradigm for life. It's to alter the way they think about who they are, who he is, and what life is really about. For them, though, if their paradigm is going to shift, they have to choose to have a loose hold on their expectations of who Jesus should be and what Jesus should do. And the same goes for us. If we're truly going to be people of faith who follow Jesus, even when we end up in a storm, we have to have a loose hold on our expectations of who Jesus should be and what he should do. And that's been a struggle even in my own life in the last week and a half. For me, I don't know about you, but with COVID, like the things have shifted. And it's not because I'm seeing more news. It's because I'm seeing information via text message or I'm seeing information via social media platform that's images of people that I know and care for who are very ill again. And for me, I, I feel disappointed going, why are we still under this dark gray cloud? It's me looking at the, the terrible earthquake that hits Haiti and the instability that it's caused. It's me looking at Afghanistan and, and being so very heartbroken this week. And I've seen that my own expectations of, of who Jesus should be and what he should do are going unmet. And those are moments that leave me looking in reality, going, am, am I just amazed that look at what Jesus can do? Or am I really a person of faith who's willing to stand up and say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you even when I'm not seeing you do what I wish you would do. It's our hard hearts, our unwillingness to be pliable rather, rather than rigid our unwillingness to be humble rather than angry, our unwillingness to be patient rather than proud. Our expectations of who he should be and what he should do keep us from shifting back into gear and following Jesus in faith and obedience. And, and I can miss him in these chaotic moments, these heartbreaking scenarios. I can miss him like they did in this story. That, did you notice that? They missed him even when they saw him. They weren't afraid even of the wind. It doesn't tell you that. The wind wasn't what freaked them out. They were frustrated and exhausted by the wind. It was Jesus walking on water out to meet them that terrified them. In this story, they were more alarmed by Jesus than they were comforted by him because Jesus didn't do what they expected him to do. Jesus put him on a boat and sent him into a storm. And the reality of Jesus, the all-powerful one who could do the miracle, allowing them to be in a spot like that, they're more alarmed by him than comforted by him. They expected that he'd keep them from the storm rather than send them into it. They expected that he'd calm the storm rather than walk on the chaos, proving to them that he wasn't limited or subject to it in order to meet them in their disappointment and in their fear. He didn't just snap his fingers and make the disappointment and fear go away because the storm ceased. No, he waited till he stood in front of them while the storm was still raging and told them, be of good courage, it is I, I'm here. If Jesus' goal was just to rescue them, he didn't need to come to them. He just needed to stay there and pray for them. He could have asked and the storm could have gone away. He, he, he could have stayed on the shore, but Jesus was not determined to keep them from the storm. He was, however, committed to using the storm. And that's not exploitation, that's redemption. 
that Jesus was confident that, that he could redeem what was happening. These, there are moments in life where, where God's grace spares us from the pit, where he in his mercy intervenes and keeps us from falling. But there are other moments in life, stretches and times where we will discover that grace, his grace, will walk with us through the pit. And if you picture the scene, Jesus up on the mountain, alone and praying, apparently able to see the disciples out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee struggling, it seems to imply that Jesus is there praying for them. And around six or seven at night, as dusk is setting in, he can see them already out on the water. It's several hours later. The fourth watch of the night is where he goes to meet them. That fourth watch is in between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. He, he shows up under the moonlit sky and they see him off in the distance. The truth is, we are seated on this humble boat with the disciples. Because we've had moments where we felt like we're rowing against the wind and not getting anywhere. You've had moments where you feel like you're forced to face something, or even you, you, you do, to do something that you don't want, maybe even feeling like, I've been put in this situation by God himself. Not just by random circumstances. You, you've probably had moments where you felt like all night I've been up and overwhelmed and I'm exhausted and wiped out because I can't find real rest. I mean, you're on this boat if you're a person who can say, well, I felt very alone. And, and in that moment, even God himself felt distant and separate and maybe even cold or disinterested. It's maybe that you felt discouraged when you feel like your best just doesn't get it done in this situation. It's the moments where we feel scared and terrified, like the word that's used here in the story, where you've watched your life get blown off the course where you had a plan, where things seem to be working out, and then all of a sudden it blows you off course and everything seems to fall apart. You see, the story is not just about them and about Jesus. The story is about us as well. And if you relate to the story, if you can connect to the moment, then I think one of the things Jesus would just say to us is keep rowing. Just keep going, keep rowing. Don't grow weary in doing good, for in due season you will reap your reward if you do not faint, if you don't stop. In fact, think about it. In the story, hours before Jesus will go to him, Jesus is already seeing them struggling. He's allowing them to endure the storm. He's allowing them to face adversity. He waited to come to them until they were thoroughly frustrated in the battle. Listen, our theology allows for a heavenly father who uses. We don't always say that he causes all of these things that happen in our life, every storm that hits our life, but we are confident that he uses every storm and difficult season to shape the spiritual maturity of his dearly beloved children. God allowed even his own son to suffer and die on a cross because of the joy that was set before him, because there was an end goal. And my friends, remember that then the storms that you're in, they're not exclusive. Even Jesus suffered. And they're not empty without purpose. And they're not eternal. What we celebrate by gathering on a Sunday is resurrection. That there's more to come on the other side of life. But here's the thing. We live in, we live in a tension. 
If we're honest, this is where we live, in a subtle tension that exists in all of our hearts. If we've chosen to follow Jesus, and yet we look at our life and we say, but you allow this storm, or we look at our world and we see brokenness happening on such a massive scale uh, between COVID and, and, and Haiti and Afghanistan, and we haven't even mentioned Ethiopia and all that's happening in the world where we just go, dear God, why? And the truth is, in moments like this, we react more like we've been spooked by seeing a ghost than the fact that we perceive and see Jesus' gracious presence and hand in the middle of the storms that we face. We need to remember that, that these storms are not necessarily evidence that we've done something wrong. In fact, in Scripture, there are some storms that were corrective. Think of Jonah. Yeah, he needed correction, and so God brought a storm to correct and redirect him. Some are directive. It's the Apostle Paul out on a ship, and a storm will redirect them to another place. In my own life, adversity has been the way that God has led us and a lot of decisions that we've made together as a family for Lindsay and I. Other storms are instructive, where God will teach you things through them, and, and, and you'll be matured through that process. And for the disciples, their storm, you remember, is something they find themselves in because they obeyed Jesus, not because they did anything wrong at all. They listened to Jesus' command, and they even seemed determined to follow his command as they continue to row hour after hour into a headwind. <laughs> for me, though, when I'm in a spot like this, all I want is out. In fact, it's funny, if we really analyzed our prayers during moments like this, typically that's what we pray for is just a way out. We either ask that it stops or that we get out from under it, but we, we often don't ask for anything to do with, well, God, what are you trying to do here? Or, God, I'm willing to yield and have a heart that's pliable, that's soft, to allow you to reshape it or redirect it. We rarely say anything like that because all we're interested in get, is getting out from under it. But instead of doing that, instead of Jesus yielding to those kinds of desires, Jesus does three things that this is how we'll wrap up, is I'll just give you these thoughts of application things that you see Jesus do in the storm. And the first is this, what Jesus is doing in the storm that he sent them into is that Jesus is revealing God in the storm. And this is what happens. This is what Jesus accomplishes in adversity in our lives, in tragic hard moments, is that he uses them to reveal God in the storm. Mark is a masterful writer in that he doesn't just come right out and say it super clear again and again and again that this is who Jesus is. Instead, what Mark does is he again and again shows Jesus doing and accomplishing things that only God could do. It's Mark 2 where Jesus sits with the paralytic and, and he says, what's easier to say that your sins are forgiven or arise, take up your bed and walk? And he said, but so that you know that the Son of Man has power to forgive, I'll say, rise up, take up your bed and walk. And what did they say? They screamed party foul and said, you can't forgive sins. Only God can do that. It's Mark chapter 4 where Jesus, he's on the boat with the guys and the storm is raging. And Jesus stands up and says, peace be still and has authority over the sea. And the thing that shook them so deeply was the fact that only God can do that. Have authority over chaos, over evil, over the sea. It's Jesus in this moment walking upon the water, something only God could do. You might remember Job's story. Remember in Job 9, he's at the point where after losing everything, he's, he's starting to talk to one of his friends and he makes the comment, he says, I just wish that God and I could sit together, that we could discuss this, that I could understand what he's doing or trying to accomplish. And then his comment is, I, I, I know even if we did sit together, that he's so different from me that we wouldn't understand each other. We need a mediator. The beauty is that 1 Timothy says that we have a mediator. 
There's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. But in Job 9, he says this about how different God is from him. He's like, how would he understand me? Because he's so different from me. He moves mountains. He shakes the earth. He walks upon the sea. It's the psalmist Asaph who, who echoes Job's statement in Psalm 77, where he says it this way in verse 19. He says, your road led through the sea, your pathway through the mighty waters, a pathway no one knew was there. Another translation says it this way. Your way went through the sea, your path through the great waters, but your footprints remained unseen. You see, the Old Testament tells us that one of the ways that you know that God is God is that he alone walks upon the sea. And in this moment, the guys are seeing Jesus with, with great clarity and with grandeur. They're impressed in this moment. It gave them a moment to see who he was. And it makes the statement, and he would have passed them by. It's kind of an odd little statement that, that is only found in Mark's gospel. But don't overlook this. Why is this mentioned here that Jesus would pass them by? We, we don't assume that it's because Jesus was walking on the water and he had somewhere else to be. And that he just happened to be walking along. Oh, hey, guys, hadn't seen you. Like, and it's clear he had seen them already while on the hillside. It doesn't imply to us that Jesus is out for an evening stroll and that this is what he did every night is go for a walk on the water. Scholars agree that, that what is intentionally being referenced here is supposed to take your mind back to the book of Exodus. Because in Exodus 33 and 34, there's this climactic moment where Moses and God's people are, are together and God is telling them, I'm going to reveal myself to you. I'm going to show you who I am. I'm going to pass by you. And God reveals his character to them. And this is what he says as he passes by them to reveal who he is. He says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. There's such specific verbiage here used in, in this little moment here where it says he would have passed them by that it's meant to take the mind of the reader back to Exodus and now, think of it, and now to include Jesus and his presence here on the earth as being the way that God will reveal himself. That's the connection. That's what Mark is trying to do is tell you, don't miss this. In the Old Testament, this is that passage, Exodus 33 and 34, that passage is the most quoted scripture or the most quoted section of the Bible in the Bible. It's quoted again and again throughout the scriptures because it was such a huge moment where God comes to reveal himself to his people. And what Mark is saying is that what you, that you saw in the Old Testament that was revealed just in part, you're seeing in a whole new way as God walks among us. Jesus is meant to be the way that you would define God, what he's like and what he does, who he is. And that one who, who embodies God in the flesh, present for us to see, he looks at them and says, take heart, it is I. Remember Exodus 3.14, there's the exact same phrase is found there in the Greek Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, where Moses is at the burning bush and he says, who are you, God? And he says, I am who I am. Same exact Greek word is actually used here by Jesus. Take heart, I am who I am. It was Jesus making a very clear claim to deity here. Something that the first century audience would have understood as they're reading this going, 
wow, we're seeing it. And the guys in this moment are so overwhelmed and so overcome that, that when Jesus steps to them and says, take heart, be of good cheer, I am who I am, steps onto the boat and everything ceases. They're just amazed. You see, Jesus reveals God in the storm. He could have done it on the hillside, but he did it in the middle of the sea. He could have revealed things in a talk to the disciples in a more comfortable circumstance where they're just seated on a hillside eating a lunch together. But sometimes we don't hear him. We don't see him in those comfortable circumstances or places. And so what he does is he takes us into hard moments where he has our attention and he speaks to us so clearly. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. My friends, if you're in dark skies today, if you find yourself bounced around by the intensity of a storm, don't stop rowing, don't give up. The dawn of a new day is coming. And Jesus would stand and say, take heart, take heart. It's I, I am that I am. Jesus in the story, he will reveal God in the storm. But then the second thing he does, and this is worth taking note of, is that he brings good things out of the storm. He brings good stuff from the storm. You see, they were headed, it tells you, towards Bethsaida for some rest. It's the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. There's this headwind that's coming off the eastern Golan Heights. This wind that still today comes howling over those ridges and pushing them towards the west. So it, in the end, they end up way west in the area, the region called Gennesaret. And that's where they end up arriving. And you remember when they arrive there, the multitudes come out and Jesus touches and heals many of them. Now think about it. If they had not been blown off course... They would never have seen God in the storm and they would never experienced all the good things that came from the storm, the byproduct of it. Remember, they begged him that they could just touch him and as many as touched him were healed and made whole. You know, the wedding I did last weekend uh, for a dear friend in Texas, um, I grabbed him and all his groomsmen and we went into a little side room to pray right before the ceremony started. And, and right before I prayed, it just dawned on me is a very profound moment where I said, Jake, what baklava meant for evil, God has used for good. <laughs> Jake and his dad understood. That, I don't know that everyone else that was present had any idea. What baklava meant for evil in that guy's life, God has used for good. The guy went to Israel with me the end of his senior year, and, and while up in the Golan Heights in a Druze village, uh, we're having amazing shish kebabs, and they offered some dessert, and it involved baklava. Jake has a peanut allergy and ate a piece, not realizing there are peanuts in it. He had asked someone, are there peanuts? English was like a fourth language, and so they said, Shh, no, there's not peanuts. In the end, I think they meant pine nuts. Um, regardless of that, he went into anaphylactic shock. So he hit himself with his first EpiPen, and then when that didn't seem to calm his system down, I called his dad, who's a medical doctor, and woke him up here stateside, which is the last thing you want to do when you've got kids on the other side of the earth, um, and told him, it's not an emergency, be calm, but your son's in anaphylactic shock and we don't know what to do, it's kind of an emergency, what do you think we should do? Um, so we ended up getting him on the bus and put everybody on it and then started racing down the Golan, about an hour drive down to get towards the hospital. And on that drive, 
uh, hit him with a second EpiPen and still uh, his body was not responding to it. And so then it was a quick taxi drive that ended up taking us to a hospital where they pumped him full of IV meds and things that ended up getting a system to stabilize. And honestly, very scary moments. There was, for me, I'm, I'm the, the really nice, uh, compassionate person who in moments like that sometimes overcompensates. Like, if people are really excited, then I'm a wet blanket. If people are really down, then sometimes I can like be overly cheery. It's not a strength, it's a bad thing that I have to monitor. And in a situation like that, where you've got someone sitting next to you saying, if I die, you need to tell my mom I love her. It's like, how do I turn this into a joke? And then at some point it's like, there's nothing to joke about anymore. I don't know how we're gonna get through this. Thankfully he made it, but unfortunately for Jake, his whole life was leading to him going into the Coast Guard, which he was so excited about getting into the Coast Guard Academy. And he would go just a few weeks after our trip, but within weeks of being there, he'd be pulled from his team and they'd ask him about his peanut allergy. And they said, it's a minor thing, What's, you know, it's not something to worry about, but when's the last time you had a flare up? And he said, well, I just had something happen, he was honest. And they said, well, how bad was it? So he explained the situation. They put him back with his group and then after a while they ended up pulling him again from his group and said, we're sorry, but we're going to disqualify you. You're, you're going to have to leave. So he ended up appealing it, getting a congressional letter and appealing it, and then the appeal was denied. And so his whole life trajectory changed, shifted to where now he spends the next semester of where he would have been with these guys moving forward in their training. He instead sends it, spends it swinging a hammer back here in San Diego on a construction site, trying to figure out what he's going to do with his life. From there, he gets into a Corps Cadets program at Texas A&M, where it's going to prep you to go into military service until he's told there's no way any branch of the military will ever take you because you've already been bounced from one. For the poor guy and his family, our son's life, his dreams, he's got leadership skills. The, honestly, probably the most gifted natural leader I've ever known in my life. And somehow, he's one of those people who can lead the charge with a group, but at the same time can care for individuals. Just super gifted guy. All of a sudden, it feels like, God, even what you gave him feels like it's being squandered. What are you doing? In that process, though, God reshaped Jake's heart. In that process, because of his faith and willingness to continue to walk forward, his roommate from the Coast Guard became a believer in Jesus. In that process, because of his faith and his willingness to move forward, even when he had unmet expectations and choose to embrace faith, it was then the guys at Texas A&M, the Corps Cadets group, that was greatly impacted by that testimony. In that process, then, he meets this young woman. In that process, then, God reshapes his heart and puts him into a very unique school program that will allow them to go out internationally, and his heart is for the Arab world, to go and make disciples, to tell people about Jesus. What baklava meant for evil. There are so many conversations Jake and I had over a stretch of probably a couple of years that were really hard emotional conversations. There were times sitting with his parents that was just so sad and so hopeless going, how could God let the dreams and the gifts be squandered? What is God doing? And then we had a moment where we could look back and say, look at what God has done. Listen, please hear me say this. Scripture doesn't say that God is the cause of all of our suffering. However, it's perfectly clear and promising that God is more than capable of using all of our suffering and working it together for good. It's in Genesis where Joseph looks at his brothers and says, what you meant for evil, God has used for good. It's Romans 8.28 says that we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It's Isaiah, the prophet, saying that he will give a crown of beauty from the ashes. But beauty from ashes doesn't mean 
It means a large financial settlement, settlement on, on the other side of the car accident. It doesn't always mean that. It doesn't always mean a new relationship after the previous one has, has decayed and fallen apart. It doesn't mean a bigger house on the other side of bankruptcy. It doesn't always mean that. It might mean, and I quote, the greatest moment of salvation amongst Muslims from the ashes of this catastrophe. That statement was released this week by some of the leaders of the church in Afghanistan. When they asked or were asked, please tell the world how we can pray for you. They said, pray for strength and endurance because there's much work to be done. And then they said, pray that we like Jesus, when he went back into Nazareth and the mob came after him, pray that we could pass right through the middle of them untouched. But then he said, just know the Afghan church, and I quote, believes that the best days are before us and we will witness the greatest movement of salvation amongst Muslims from the ashes of this catastrophe. These men are not naive. They know that the ashes are probably their own lives. Unless Jesus intervenes miraculously. It's wild, just a few weeks ago, as we looked at a passage before this, remember we talked about the Markin sandwich. Jesus sends out the apostles before he receives them back from their mission. It throws the story of John the Baptist being murdered in the middle of it. It's an intentional connection that Mark's trying to build in the audience to help us understand that for Jesus, mission and martyrdom are inseparable. And in the story, Jesus will commission them and send them out. And at the end of the story, he will then bring them back in. And when he receives them, they will report to him all that they have done for him, and then Jesus told them what? Let's go and rest for a while. And for many, who would have thought, with just, within just a few weeks, we'd be looking at our world and saying, and for many who have been commissioned by Jesus, they'll be received by him, tell them their report, and he'll say, enter into rest with me forever. An organization our church supports this week had put out a statement. We support them each month as a church, uh, really it's because of your generosity, but they put out a statement that they have 22 people, uh, church leaders, men and women, and medical professionals that are on the ground in Afghanistan that they support. And they scrambled hard for 48 hours to pull together plans that would allow them to start extraditing people from there and coordinating with neighboring countries to allow them to get these folks out. And once their plan was together, they started via satellite phones reaching out to the people on the ground and one by one, those people took those calls and said, we're not leaving. There's a pastor in Germany. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer had stood against Hitler and the rise to power of the Nazi movement. His American friends convinced him to leave. Because how could God allow this? So Bonhoeffer left and he came stateside. Two weeks later, he boarded a ship headed back from New York City towards Germany. And he made this statement in a letter to his friends. He said, I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after this war if I don't stay and share in the trials 
of this time with my own people. He wrote an amazing book about the cost of discipleship. He said it this way. He said the words why, when, where, and how are all words of the faithless. The only word that should be spoken by the man or woman of God is who, and the who will always lead you back to him. I do want you to know, uh, in regard to those 22 people in Afghanistan, if they decide to leave, we want to be a part of helping them. Or if they decide to send their family out, we want to put wings to that. If they decide to stay, we want to make sure that their needs are met, even if it's that they end up doing supply runs or things that are dropped in the hills for them. Whatever that looks like, we want to be a part of that. And as a church, you all have been so generous, and we as the elders wanted to reflect that heart of generosity. And so we had been praying, God, lead us to places that we can support. And so this is a place that we've decided to support. And so we wrote a check that will be received by them on Tuesday for $15,000 on behalf of you all because of your generosity to help support these individuals who have chosen to stay, whether it's that they send their family out or we get them resources that might be food, water, and Bibles for all we know. But our hope is to stand with them in this really gnarly season. And I just want to tell you, there's no, we're not taking any extra offering. We're not asking you to do anything. You've been so generous that we want to express and reflect your heart of generosity as we look at situations like this, and we want to be generous as a church community as we look at our world. In moments like this, Jesus shows up and he just says, take courage. I am who I am, don't be afraid. A part of what they didn't understand from the loaves and the fish, because that's what Mark says they missed, is that Jesus would identify himself as the bread of life, that the lesson was that he alone could bring sustenance and purpose in life. And that means that if everything else is stripped away, that the one thing that would remain is not a thing at all, it's a person, and it's Jesus. The one who would remain is the one who would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you could hear the promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. They failed to make the connection that if he could do that there, then he could do something here. And for us, if he moved heaven and earth to have us, bled and died on a cross to purchase and adopt us, then how could he not be trusted by us? Jesus, by allowing the storm and letting them sit in it, he revealed who God was in that moment. He brought good stuff from it. But in the end, the story is about God coming near in the storm. There's a Greek linguist by the name of Dr. Weiss who looks at the sentence structure where it says that Jesus arrives, would have passed them by, all of those things. And it, he, he rewords it this way. He says, and Jesus was desiring to go to their side. The story is about a God who's moved by his people when they're in the storm and he shows up beside them to calm their overwhelmed and fearful hearts. In scripture, it says the Lord is near the brokenhearted. In Hebrews, it says that he sympathizes with our every weakness. It means he suffers with. My friends, don't settle for just stepping back and being impressed or amazed by Jesus. Engage your heart and choose to embrace faith in Jesus, even in the midst of the darkness of night, even in the midst of moments where your expectations of who he'd be and what he'd do go unmet. Because in those moments, I can assume he's just disinterested. He's just detached. 
but he's desiring to come to my side. I think we need to be careful not to pre-write the script for how God will do things. I think we need to be slow to do that and to let Jesus be who he is and show his glory and his grace and his goodness. We need to trust the one who'd leave the safety and the comfort that he had to not just meet us in the storm, but take our place on a cross to end the biggest of storms, the storm of eternal justice, so that he could quiet every storm for all of eternity and say to us, enter into the rest I've prepared for you. So Jesus, we thank you that this is who you are and who we're invited to trust and follow. Jesus, we thank you that we don't have just pithy statements or, or little moments that we can look in this book to distract us from reality. Jesus, this book allows us to engage with a greater reality. When we're in a storm and all we see is chaos and brokenness, we, we can look your direction, Jesus, and see the great I am. To see the one who'd say, take heart, have courage. It's me. And Jesus, in the middle of these situations we look at in our world and in the middle of the situations that we face every day. Jesus, we want to look your direction and see the one who's good and trustworthy. And we want to choose not just to be impressed with you, but to love you and follow you by faith. Jesus, thank you that you've given us such reason to trust you. While we were sinners, you died for us. You went to a cross to demonstrate that love. So Jesus, we choose to engage our lives and our hearts to follow you by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.